Good evening, and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website, online at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. We also have our uh, October edition in news boxes, libraries, and many other places around the city. I'm joined today by my co-host, Amr Gagarian. Hi, John. It's great to be here with you, and welcome to all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. We have another fantastic show for you this evening. We'll start by delving into New York's unexpectedly close governor's race. But before we go any further with that, I just want to let everybody know, speaking of elections, the Independent News Hour will be hosting an election night special on Tuesday, November 8th, two weeks from today, from 5 to 10 p.m. We'll cover both uh, New York races and what's happening happening nationally. We have all sorts of uh, great guests we're lining, we're lining up, so we're really excited about that. We'll be sharing more about that next week as well. Uh, so, uh, as I was saying, uh, with uh, uh, Republican gubernatorial candidate Lee Zeldin gaining rapidly in the polls on incumbent Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul, uh, we'll hear some clips from a raucous get-out-the-vote get rally for Hochul. Uh, that I attended on Sunday afternoon on the Upper West Side. The event was disrupted by Zeldin supporters and some really strange and disturbing anti-vaxxers. And we're also going to hear from indie reporter Ted Ham, who has a new article out on how Zeldin is using blatantly racist images, tropes, and campaign promises to push his touch, uh, sorry, tough on crime message. And we'll speak with Democratic Socialist Assembly member Marcella Mitanias of Sunset Park, Brooklyn about the governor's race and how it could affect working class New Yorkers. We'll also speak with Matanius, a former tenant organizer, about the shocking news that came out last week uh, about how more than 60,000 rent stabilized apartments in the city are currently vacant, even as both rents and homelessness continue soaring. Right, John, and some are claiming that number is closer to 90,000. But later in the show, we'll speak with acclaimed street photographer Alex Harsley about a new exhibit of his life's work that is being staged on the Lower East Side. But first, we turn to the governor's race and the raucous get-out-the-vote rally held Sunday on the Upper West Side. John, set the scene for us. Yeah, so Sunday's rally was uh, held on the Upper West Side in Verity Square outside the 72nd Street uh, subway entrance to the 1, 2, and 3 trains. Uh, Manhattan Borough President Mark Levine was the MC. He's been warning for weeks that the Democrats and Kathy Hochul were sleeping on this race. Uh, he was joined by a number of other elected officials, including Upper West Side Congressman uh, uh, Gerald Nadler and New York Attorney General Tish James. And there were probably 100 or so Hochul supporters on hand and uh, roughly 25 to 30 counter protesters. As the event began, several Zeldin supporters uh, made their way to the front of the crowd and began heckling the speakers. And uh, when the Hochul supporters tried to hold up their campaign signs in front of them to block their view, they uh, were cursing out the uh, uh, the Hochul supporters. And, and uh, these um, Zeldin supporters were all uh, men, some uh, you know fairly beefy. Um, and and uh, at one point, one of the counter protesters uh, jumped on the stage, but uh, he was pinned down. And taken away, or, or more like taken to the back of the crowd, uh, he wasn't arrested. Uh, and so all this early drama riled up the pro Hochul speakers and supporters. We saw more passion from them than we've probably seen from Kathy Hochul at any point in this campaign. So what we have now are some clips uh, featuring 
uh, City Comptroller Brad Lander, City Councilwoman Gail Brewer, and Grace Lee, the Democratic nominee for an assembly seat in downtown Brooklyn, uh, downtown Manhattan. For abortion rights, we are fighting for the full rights of women in New York and all around our country to be free and full equal human beings. When we fight for voting rights, we are saying this is a country which has not yet delivered to black and brown New Yorkers, to black and brown Americans, the right to be free and full equal human beings. And we will not let election deniers or voting rights oppressors deny their ability. When we fight for a New York state that stands up for working people, that demands that working people have their rights to organize a labor union, to fight together for the rights that they have. We are saying we can build a city, a state, and a country where everybody's got an equal shot. And the only way we do that is by protecting our democracy and by fighting for and winning the election in November. So that was City Comptroller Brad Lander, Councilwoman Gail Brewer, and Assembly nominee Grace Lee. Uh, as you can hear, there was a strong emphasis on defending abortion rights and defending democracy and voting blue, as you heard Grace Lee implore the crowd to do in her speech. Uh, there was less emphasis. There was some emphasis, but definitely less emphasis on what Kathy Hochul and her fellow Democrats would do to materially improve the lives of working class New Yorkers. Right, John. And I was doing some research today, um, looking through Zeldin's Facebook page and noticing that he is, you know, making a big effort, hustling a lot to get out onto the streets, do events with people in public um, and, and really campaigning very visibly um, and writing personally on his Facebook, things like that. So despite his awful messaging, um from my perspective as a prospective voter, you know, he's he's doing a lot of campaigning with the people. Um, yeah. People can have awful messages and be good campaigners. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so, right. At, at the end of Sunday's rally, I spoke uh, with uh, uh, City Councilwoman Gail Brewer uh, about whether Zeldin's efforts to scare voters into supporting him had been uh, aided by Mayor Eric Adams and his intense focus on crime and public safety for the past year and a half, first as a candidate for mayor and then as mayor, is Zeldin, Zeldin reaping what Adams hath sown? Like the sort of the, the, the anti-crime messaging of Adams and some other Democrats in the last year have kind of uh, laid the groundwork Uh-huh. All different directions. Uh-huh. We have uh, very 
focus on, 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 on this. And, and really almost scaring the, you think he scared the city in a way that's made it more uh, easier for Zelda to... I don't know that he's made it easier for Zelda. I think we have to figure out how to solve these issues. Uh-huh. And I think he's trying. We need to do it, not just with cops. Uh-huh. You got to do it with the affordable housing. Okay. You got to pay your social service, human service, nonprofits. Yeah. They don't, they're very low on salaries in terms of the amount. Right. And you've got to figure out this mental health situation. Speaking of Zeldin being able to successfully wield an incendiary anti-crime message, we're going to be joined in a moment by the Independent's Ted Ham. And Ted has been tracking Zeldin's message around crime in his new article up on the Independent, on independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T.org, titled, In New York Governor's Race, Lee Zeldin Stokes Fear of Dark-Skinned Criminals to Surge in the Polls. Ted, welcome back to the Independent News Hour. Thanks, Amba. Good to be with you and John. Yeah, absolutely. So for starters, um, can you respond to what uh, Manhattan City Councilwoman Gail Brewer uh, had to say in response to that question about um, Adam's fear mongering, uh, you know, giving power to Zeldin in short? Um, And then tell us more about who Lee Zeldin is and the kind of racially charged messaging he's using to to search the polls. Okay, sure. Um, I thought... Brewer was sort of being uh, a politician being political <laughs> in that she didn't really want to criticize Adams, but it's clear that Adams ran a similar campaign sort of every time the New York Post, uh, there was a, mur- a murder or other violent incident. He was there and he got coverage in the New York Post and uh, presented himself as the, as the answer to crime and that if, if if he were elected, things would change. And now he's having a problem because things haven't changed or there's been a number of dramatic incidences, uh, incidents. And um, the New York Post actually was angry with his response to subway crime last week. So it's, you know, that you can easily see a scenario in which if Zeldin were to win, uh, then he would be in the same situation because the governor, it's not, it's not even clear how much the governor actually can affect what happens on the streets. Uh, it's a local, may a mayor and the, the police department have more um, impact than what the governor can do. Uh, but in, in any case, so uh, Zeldin is a, a Trumper uh, congressman for, or, for, uh, now exiting from his uh, the office in Suffolk out in Long Island. Um, and, you know, the, you heard a lot of the speakers there at that rally outlining his positions. He's against abortion. He's against gun control. Uh, he didn't vote not certified the January, uh, the, uh, the 20, November 2020 election. Um, and so, you know, he, and he was advising Trump on his team how to handle uh, the rejecting the election results. And there's no question he's a, he's a, a diehard Trumper. Um, but, he is running his campaign stoking this hysteria about crime. So that's what I wrote about. And it's really a pro mass incarceration agenda that would roll back any of the gains that have been made in the last few years, or at least is um, would move in that direction. He wants to fire uh, Manhattan's first black DA. He wants to end criminal justice reform, particularly bail reform, but also uh, solitary confinement changes, uh, restrictions that have been imposed, also um, raise the age. So New York was one of the only states where 16-year-olds could be prosecuted as adults up until recently, and now they want he wants to roll that back. So 
whether he could do all that is unclear, but it's clear the signaling is the messaging is clear. This is uh, hysteria about crime, but also with using black and brown, uh, the menace, the specter of black and brown people um, that he's going to crack down on that, on, on that threat, uh, restoring the death penalty, curtailing parole, um, friendly or uh, pro corrections officers uh, statements about who's going to run the corrections department of the state and more, more prison guard, more jobs for prison guards, all kinds of stuff. So, um, you know, it's right. really a re- reaction against the criminal justice reform movement that has gained and ma- made headway in the last few years. Right. Now, one of Zeldin's most infamous campaign commercials uh, featuring a montage of security camera footage of black and brown uh Use committing violent crimes. Uh, here's the voiceover uh, for that commercial. The fear of crime is real. Then, without warning, he turns violent. And You're looking at actual violent crimes caught on camera in Kathy Hochul's New York, and it's getting much worse. On Kathy Hochul's watch, on November 8th, vote like your life depends on it. It just might. Lee Zeldin for governor, because it's time our families feel safe. Uh, Yeah, so, I mean, several people pointed out one of those uh, incidents occurred in California. Uh, One was of a person, Saheed Vassell, who under plainclothes NYPD officers killed in Crown Heights. He was holding a piece of pipe. It looked like a gun, so he was clearly experiencing a mental health episode. But all of that um, nuance is lost when people when you have someone just stoking this hysteria and fear, and you know it gains traction. It's a lot easier to um, get get people to respond viscerally to that sensation of fear and and an outrage and, and uh, concern and so forth. Uh, than it is to explain, you know, what may be some alternative approaches to these issues. There was actually a New York Post story, cover story yesterday about the mother of the uh, young man who was pushed onto the tracks on the L train at um, um, Myrtle or wherever that was. I forget exactly which stop that was. Um, but um, he, um, the, the mother was responding in a way that was totally unpredictable or if you would think that it would be an article in which, you know, she was blast the headline, she's blasting Adams's handling of that event. And, but she actually said more cops is the wrong way to go. And this is a mental health issue. We are not addressing the mental health issue. So you have people who are, uh, you know, in the moment who've been traumatized by what happened, um, but to their, to their children. And, but sh- this particular person, Audrey Martin is, uh, you know, saying things that need to be addressed. That's when Gail Brewer did bring that up, uh, that mental, the mental health crisis is, is very real and it's very evident in many of these attacks that we've seen on the subway and elsewhere. Right. And you mentioned the footage of Shahid Vassell. Um, uh, uh, can you, uh, explain the family's reaction to their sons appearing in Zeldin's campaign ad? Uh, you covered that in, in your recent article. Sure. Well, his father has been pushing for accountability, which he's thus far, they've been unable to get any, uh, successful prosecution of the officers. Uh, but, you know, he did call on, uh, Zeldin to not play politics with his son's image is the statement he gave. And so, you know, there, this is insensitive to someone who was, who didn't kill anyone, uh, and then was, uh, killed immediately by 
plain clothes officers who just simply thought he had a gun. So, you know, who knows what this portends for if, if Zeldin prevails and sort of gives carte blanche to law enforcement across the state, you know, and it's just um, a nightmare scenario that, that someone who has no concern for uh, police violence or has no, I mean, certainly as someone who's stridently pro gun uh, pro NRA is their candidate and so on. So, you know, that doesn't make any sense for someone who's, trying to present themselves as a uh, you know, law and order person, uh, candidate to then also want the state to be flooded with guns, which is what the NRA wants. Right. And can you talk about um, the, the billionaire who is uh, uh, bankrolling a lot of these attack ads uh, uh, on behalf of uh, Lee Zeldin, uh, uh, that being uh, Ronald Lauder, heir to the Estee Lauder cosmetics fortune? Sure. Well, he's a familiar figure in right-wing circles. He actually, going back to the 90s, uh, he bankrolled the uh, term limits. Twice was on the ballot in New York City. Uh, So that was an attack on the political machine. So some, you know, that could have some uh, support from the left, but uh, in any, for, for the most part, he's really been on the right for the last several decades now. And yeah, I mean, they, they, this is all the cynicism of uh, the New York Republicans or the national Republicans, the Trump Republicans. I mean, they're just using this hysteria to advance an agenda. I mean, Zeldin has no real policies that I've seen that will address inflation. It's not like he's um, positioning himself as a populist in that regard and so so basically he's going to be working on the behalf of various elite interests uh like the lauders and probably others that we don't yet know about who've been bankrolling him as well um i mean the only i mean one difference between zeldin and trump is that zeldin doesn't even bother with the phony populist routine he's um you know he's not pretending to be in a a foe of of the one percent or anything like that um so you know he's he's going he's got he's got a different um personality i guess you could say yeah he has kind of a ron DeSantis vibe kind of sour and angry yeah i think that we'll we'll see that tonight in the debate i don't i mean i you can't say that kathy hochel is the most dynamic presence but uh zeldin sort of has this um he, he repeats himself and sort of talks in circles and doesn't it, it's i don't i don't find it to be terribly charismatic but you know there's a lot of anger out there right now and, and as you saw it at the upper west side event the other day there's just you know these uh, people coming out of the woodwork and just shouting down um politicians whatever way they can and trying to advance their agenda it's just yeah Kathy Coco is now the target but she so but as you were outlining before I mean, she hasn't given people a great agenda or clear sense of what they're voting for. But, you know, at least I would say that Zeldin has clearly signaled to the left or any left leaning people that there's a lot, a lot of reasons to vote against him. If he, if he wins, then, you know, he may not be able to enact all of this agenda that he's promising, but he will be able to, uh, the state Senate is not going to be a, a veto, veto proof majority. So it's going to create a, a real dif- it's going to create real difficulty for any kind of progressive legislation to pass through um, Albany under his watch because he can veto it and then there, there'll be a big fight over trying to override that veto and so forth. So, you know, it's it's um, it would be chaos in, in Albany 
uh, should he prevail. Right. Well, we'll have to leave it there uh, for now, but this is a race we're going to continue to follow. And uh, Ted Ham, we're always uh, delighted that you're on, on the, on the story and we appreciate you joining us on WBAI radio this afternoon. All right. Thanks. Have, have a good rest of your show. You bet. Thank Thanks. you, Ted. So uh, we will be back after a short break and we'll be joined by Democratic Socialist Assembly member Marcella Matanius from Sunset Park. And we'll talk some more about the governor's race and other important issues that she's uh, immersed in. I'm taking time away to dream. I'm taking time out to clean up my room. And when I clean up, my room will gleam. Because dreams aren't as unreal as they seem I'm taking time away to dream I'm taking time out Records in their covers and then I'll put the album back into their place And I'll sweep up this morning and when I look at the clock, I see it says ten I'm taking time away to dream I'm taking time out Well, I just can't be sure anymore I just can't be sure No, I just can't be sure anymore I just can't be sure I'll pick up my pants even though So after I wash up, I got some place to go. I'm taking time away to dream. I'm taking time out. Well, I just can't be sure anymore. I just can't be sure. No, I just can't be sure anymore. I just can't be sure. That was Time Away by Arthur Russell. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton, and I'm also joined by my co-host, Amber Gagarian. Uh, we're now going to uh, turn and speak with Democratic Socialist Assembly Member Marcella Matanias uh, from Sunset Park, Brooklyn. Uh, she was a longtime tenant organizer in her community. Uh, she was elected to the uh, State Assembly in 2020 and is uh, wrapping up her first uh, very busy term in office and has had a chance to see how Albany works up close. And we look forward to her thoughts on the governor's race as it enters its final stretch. And uh, we're also excited to uh, talk about some other important matters. Uh, Marcella, welcome to the Independent News Hour. Welcome back. Hi, thank you for having me. How's it going? Uh, it's going good. Um, you know, we're all uh, sort of on pins and needles as uh, this uh, governor's race uh, moves into its final two weeks. Uh, it, wh- what are your thoughts as, as somebody who's, like I said, wrapping up their first term in office? Uh, you've worked uh, uh, both with Andrew Cuomo, then uh, Kathy Hochul took over uh, last August after he resigned in disgrace. And now we have the prospect of a, a, a MAGA-friendly Republican uh, maybe even winning uh, the governor's seat this year. Your thoughts? Sorry. Yeah, so um, we have a new governor. 
but um, pretty much Albany is still running very much the same. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, the Democratic leadership really has an opportunity here to galvanize around these campaigns and they're not doing it. And so what we're seeing is we're seeing the folks from the left really kind of like step in and try and help, um, which is probably leading to the tight margins. Um, I really feel like the Democratic Party is fractured and, you know, folks that are um, moderate uh, Democrats are really towing the line and between, you know, the, the Republican and Democratic Party. And I think that that's dangerous. We're also, you know, I feel very frustrated that now we're not able to provide more seeing as we have um, a majority and, you know, the Democrats are the ones that are in power. Right. And uh, uh, I know some of your DSA colleagues are, uh, have said they're going to vote on the Working Families Party line, um, including, I assume, for Hochul. What what's your stance at this point? I mean, I think it's important to understand, you know, where and how the working families, you know, came about. And again, you know, I talk about this, um, the fact that the Democratic Party is, is fractured and, you know, uh, there was a line for progressives, but even progressives don't seem to be producing enough, which is why there is now another lane. And so I, too, will be voting on the Working Families Party. Right. And um, I guess you describe for audience uh, more about sort of what the powers of the governor are in Albany and what it would look like uh, if Zeldin um, uh, came into power. You know, um, within within the chambers, there's often talks about um, how difficult it was to pass legislation when um, the Republicans were in power. And so we know that there's a lot um, that we have been able to accomplish that, you know, we're concerned about that with a Republican governor, they might want to roll some things back. Um, the governor is also in a, in a position where they can actually uh, use their, their position to really lead on, you know, many issues that our voters care about, you know, like environmental justice and, you know, especially the housing crisis that we have right now. And and this is the first time in uh, 20 years that a Republican candidate has made it this far, been this neck and neck in the polls. So what are your thoughts on why Hochul's campaign has been, in short, so ineffective or why this is happening now? I think that it's, you know, uh, a concern for a lot of my colleagues in a way that I wish that it wasn't, right? Some of these uh, controversial issues like they uh, identify, um, they don't are afraid to actually, um, you know, take a position on because they're afraid it's going to impact their election. And so I think we need to move away from making decisions based on a political future and really making decisions based on the needs of the people of the state of New York. Right. And, and speaking of the needs of the of the people, uh, we had a shocking report uh, come out in the city last week about how uh, more than 60,000 uh, rent stabilized apartments in New York City are currently vacant, basically being warehoused. And some people are saying it's almost 90,000 units out of roughly 950,000. And this is mm-hmm. a time when the real estate market is very tight. Rents are soaring. Homelessness is going up. Your your thoughts on 
on on that news and and how uh, we should respond to it. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm outraged, <laughs> right? But at the same time, I'm not surprised. We've seen this happen before. They've threatened, um, you know, uh, that they can't keep up with the repairs needed for the apartments, and that's the excuse that they're giving, you know. But the truth is. Um, this administration can actually do something about it. Just as boastfully as this mayor likes to talk about the stuff that he gets done, he should be outraged that he's got, you know, folks that can uh, rent apartments, you know, keeping them for hostage. We're in a housing crisis, you know, um, recognized by the fact that there is less than 5% vacancy available for the amount of people that live here. And so I think that this is an opportunity to really call out what's happening um, and, you know, this is, this is, this is very unacceptable. Right. And, and I think it's important to bring into the conversation why rent stabilization, uh, the argument for rent stabilization to be affordable is that those buildings that were either pre-World War One or pre-World War Two, essentially, or sorry, pre-World War Two or pre-Vietnam War, it's either like the 1940s or 1973 to be stabilized. And it would be the 40s for controlled. Um, but those no longer have overhead uh, charges the 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 landlords are not paying off the the rent or the mortgages on those buildings anymore they're just upkeeping those um upkeeping the buildings as you said correct marcella yeah some remember mean, i should say yes i mean i think that this is something that we've seen over and over again is the real estate industry constantly complaining that they can't uh, the amount of rent that they collect is not enough to maintain the buildings. I don't know how long you keep going with the same story. Um, at some point, they would actually run out of money and no longer be able to have their buildings. But here they are continuing to argue um, that they need a right. Yet we had a huge problem when um, there was financial assistance given out for folks that fell behind during the pandemic. And we had landlords that did not want to participate in the program mm-hmm. and refused to take the money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at some point it's like, which, which is it? You know, here you are talking yeah. about not having enough and we're trying to provide and, you know, you don't want it. Right. right. Well, they, they, they clearly want to find any way they can to uh, wriggle out of, uh, uh, having their, their, buildings under rent stabilization. But uh, do you think, uh, given what we're seeing here, I mean, the scale of the warehousing going on and the scale of the uh, affordable housing crisis in the city right now, uh, that uh, these landlords who are warehousing uh, should uh, be at risk of either having their property either taken away from them or being subjected to heavy fines or, or, or something to uh, compel them to uh, resume renting the apartments? And if they ap- absolutely won't do it face the possibility I think, that if they're, I think if they're truly having a financial hardship i think the city should just take over this property and we should manage it and give it out to people that need it mm-hmm. um, especially now uh we know that the 421a program has expired um but we know that landlords are fighting very hard to get it back and it's you know essentially a 30-year um tax break and there's many of those properties that are built and unfortunately um, our folks, our most needy folks don't qualify for them because the income levels are too high. We know some of those apartments are open and, and, and also vacant. Um, 
with the forcefulness that this administration talks about, especially the city who's in a housing crisis, um, who's in a state of emergency, I think that there is a lot that actually can be done, not just taking over their property, but there, certainly there's been talks about fines and, and penalties for these things. Right. right. And we just have one more minute here before we have to wrap up. Um, but uh, real quickly, you recently joined a, a delegation of some other uh, socialist elected officials and other housing uh, advocates uh, who traveled to uh, Austria last week to learn more about uh, some of their socialist uh, uh, public housing, which is uh, quite different from what we see here in in New York and in the United States. Can you describe uh, what you saw and, and what kind of inspiration you took away from that? So I can't share too much. We are going to be debriefing uh, briefly and putting together a report that we want to make public. Um, but I can say a, a, a group of almost 50 like-minded individuals uh, went to Vienna to learn about what the gold standard on housing is and it's the way it's been viewed around the world. Um, and I can share that it was very inspiring um, to see what is possible um, and then to be with a group of people who have the same shared vision, who are going to be working and organizing towards a goal. Um, and we do know that there's a better world out there for us. And so we are coming back very energized um, on the idea that everybody has a right to live um, in, the, in dignity. Right. Well, uh, we, we appreciate that. And we look forward to seeing the full report. Uh, from your trip to Vienna. And, uh, we, as always, we are really grateful and appreciate you, uh, joining us on WBAI radio. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to the continued conversation. Great. Thanks. All right. Uh, assembly member Marcella Matanias. We'll be back uh, with more after this short break. Dear Uncle Sam by Loretta Lynn. And Loretta Lynn was an iconic country music 
singer who died at the age of 90 on October 4th. Um, and Lynn had a long career that spanned uh, basically between 1963 and 19, uh, 2021. Uh, she, she recorded 60 studio albums in that time, uh, more non-studio. I remember hearing about uh, her uh, turning in her first album uh, uh, that she wrote over. Um, she had like three singles, three hits already, and then she wrote the rest over a weekend camping. Uh, and, and I'm talking a little bit about her because uh, she was a pretty inspiring and interesting character. She was born in Butcher Hollow, Kentucky in 1932. Her father was a coal miner who died of black lung disease. Um, she, she, he was also a, an ardent worshiper of FDR, and so was she for helping Appalachian people in the mountains. She wrote about being a working woman from a poor family. She pushed for women in the music industry, had a hit song in 1975 called The Pill, another called Don't Come Home Drinking with Loving on Your Mind in 67. Um, we just heard Dear Uncle Sam that came out in 1966, which was the first ever country music song to discuss the Vietnam War or to criticize it at all. And um, she was also an ardent Republican <laughs> who campaigned for presidents such as Nixon, Reagan, both Bushes and supported Trump. So uh, just a reminder that sometimes uh, things aren't so clear and values don't line up so evenly in this two party uh, system that we operate in. Yeah, she was an in- incredible singer and uh, made an incredible journey in her life. I mean, she was married at 15, quickly had several children um, uh-huh. from a poor background, but, you know, managed to, uh, you know, have extraordinary achievements a- as an artist. And yeah, people, people sometimes are uh, ambiguous in a lot of ways, as we see in her overall biography. And uh, soon we're going to welcome on another uh, well-acclaimed artist, Alex Harsley, veteran photographer. Um, for for one uh, moment first, we are going to uh, encourage you to keep this show on the air. Uh, this is listener-sponsored radio. That means that all of our money comes from, for the time being, listeners like you, listeners like me, um, and everybody else in the in the great WBAI family. But please do your part in keeping us on the air. If you've never given, give today. If it's five dollars, that's fine. If it's ten, twenty, thirty, fifty, two hundred, that's great. Whatever you can give, and if you haven't given in a while, please also consider giving. You can do that by calling two one two two zero nine two nine five zero. That's 212-209-2950 or go online to give the number to WBAI.org. So that's give the number to WBAI.org and uh, help keep us and other great independent shows on the air. We are a beacon of independent radio in New York City in the greater New York area. That's 212 212- Two zero nine two nine five zero. Take it over, John. Well, sure. And one of the the very best ways you can help the station is to become a WBAI buddy, uh, be, which become a monthly sustainer for as little as ten dollars a month. I'm proud to be a WBAI buddy. I love doing the show, uh, being a part of the station in various ways. But I'm also proud to be a WBAI buddy. So become a buddy like me, and become a buddy like many hundreds of other uh, uh, supporters of the station, listeners of the station. Uh, when you become a WBAI buddy, you not only get uh, the good feeling of supporting the station, the, the karmic uh, 
uh, vibes on your side, but uh, you're obviously your uh, financial foundation that helps uh, this station uh, weather difficult times. You know, we all know the station's been uh, through you know some uh, difficult times over the last decade, but it's managed to survive and stay on the air and keep shows like this and so many other great shows, public affairs shows, news shows, uh, arts and music shows uh, on this independent non-corporate station and so much of that is thanks to our wbai buddies and you also get also sorts of other uh awesome benefits and premiums uh from being a wbai buddy 212-209-2950 212-209-2950 or you can pull out the plastic and go to give number two wbai.org uh, we'd like to get at least uh, two more buddies signed up before the end of this show uh, so once again 212 212- Two zero nine two nine five zero. Become one of those new uh, WBAI buddies and help keep this station going strong. Right, and one last time, you can call two one two two zero nine two nine five zero, or go online to give the number two WBAI dot org. Send us some love, keep us on, and uh, we're going to keep pumping out news and culture as we do. And now, moving into our final segment. I am very excited to introduce master photographer and friend Alex Harsley on to WBAI. Welcome, Alex. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So Alex has an exhibit up. He's he's a staple of the Lower East Side. He has a, a gallery, the 4th Street Photo Gallery um, at 67 for East 4th Street. Uh, that's on 4th Street between 2nd and Bowery, a little bit closer to Bowery on the north side highly encourage you go there. I also am going to be, uh, you know, encouraging that you go to this exhibit. Um, he has an exhibit at the Cooper Square Committee Studio One, and that is at 59-61 uh, East 4th Street, and we'll be talking more about that uh, at the end of the show. But the exhibit is called 64 Years of Images of My New York City Community um, from Alex Harsley, who is now, you must be 80, 84, Alex? 84. And I'm just saying that because he's been experiencing and taking photos of New York City ever since he uh, moved here as a, a young teenager. So uh, to introduce Alex before we get some good questions on him and to give you an idea of what his photography is like in the show, I'm just going to read um, an excerpt um, from an article that I wrote about Alex because I couldn't introduce him in a better way. <laughs> so uh, I couldn't write it out any better than I already did, I should say. You, so here you we go. spent a lot of time and energy and, and love on that article, so please share it. Some yeah, of quick quick side note. This is from Alex and I must, I'm, I mean, we talked more than this, but I must have had 15 hours of recordings after we just talked for, for this piece. So um, here we go. On the north side of East 4th Street, between Bowery and 2nd Avenue, in a small window front shop is the 4th Street Photo Gallery. At any given hour, you might see Alex Harsley, 83 and wiry, with a crooked cap, sitting in a chair, either at the back of the gallery, watching the news or editing a video project, or outside on the street, where he observes the block he's known since 1974. 
The gallery's walls are lined ceiling to floor with 13 by 19 inch photographs. Basquiat gazes sheepishly at you. Norts pour out of culturing sacks onto your face. Muhammad Ali, a lot of Ali, looking down at you, up at you on a horse. New York City embraces you. A woman sunbathes at Coney Island and children play behind fences. Sunday bike races in Harlem. Bohemians and beatniks in Washington Square. Syrians selling clothes on the once cobblestone streets of lower Manhattan. Dancers twisting on stage. The photographer's daughters, his ex-wife, the Palisades, the World Trade Center. Heightened digital edits of images that were once taken on film. Athletes, naked women, crowds. Images sit among stacks of old cameras, floating mobiles, stacks and stacks and stacks of old photos so that's Harsley and he's here with us now um we'll pitch his 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 exhibit at the end of the show so so uh listen for it there um so you know uh you have this the show hanging uh at, at Cooper Square Committee and I also went to see one of your shows in, in last year at Pioneer Works and Red Hook a great gallery and that show was hung or exhibited in a very normal way with photos on the wall sort of like over time from your younger photographs to your older, more psychedelic photographs. This show is hung completely differently. It is not really on the wall. It's mostly on floating panels um, in this room where the afternoon light sort of like floods in and it's, it's really a, an experience. So talk about the total breaking the mold and the way that this was hung and put together. It's a bunch of small images four by six is mostly on hanging panels. So, so tell us about that process and decision. That process came about back in 1959 when I was given an opportunity to have a photograph exhibit in Harlem on 125th Street in the camera store. So I had to figure out how am I going to hang a show in, in, a, in a window. So the only conclusion I could come up with was to hang them with a string, let them float around in the window. And that was the beginning of that idea. Since then, it has matriculated all the way into the show that I got hanging now. The original show that you're referring to was curated and put together by my daughter, who prefers to see me in that light rather than the light I try to present to the public in terms of just being outright <laughs> outrageous in terms of <laughs> what I want to do in photography. I've always got some resistance in terms of what I really like to do on a creative level. So this time around, I got a chance to actually exercise my creative ability in terms of installation. I was always into installation rather than just going with a photograph and a frame on the wall around the, right. wall, around the wall. Yes, I did quite a bit of that in order to be able to afford myself to be able to go and do these outrageous things without any kind of financial consideration. Is more out of artistic consideration in terms of trying to let the public know that this is what I really do in terms of them. This is more about the people come into the gallery, the people that I see, etc. This was put together along those lines of thinking. Now, how do I integrate all of that into one show? Very difficult. I had to go back through all my files of all the people that I photographed over a period of many, many years, pull them up and then print them all out, and then figure out a way of how I'm going to present them. The best way was to go back to the original idea of putting these images on a board. The whole idea from that point forward was to base, not to think about content, but to think about the installation side of it all. So once I got into the installation side of it all, then it was just a matter of taking the photographs, putting some glue on the back, and just sticking them together on panels all the way around. 
So essentially, I'm, take, I'm taking you off where another famous artist left off back during the 50s and 60s, Romar Biddens. He used to cut images out and put images around on, on the board. So I'm doing the same thing. The only difference being is I'm using my photographs to do that. Then it's just a matter of how the complexity come out in terms of your overall view, how you look at that. You can stand back from it and look at it as just a piece of art. Or you go into it and see all these individuals. What roles do these individuals play? Well, they're, they're like memories that come forth as you're looking at them. And if you don't have any relationship, there's a different kind of relationship you establish in, in the show, which means you go around to you all of a sudden you find a conversation that you're going to have with each individual piece. Then you go back around and say, ah, now I know what the secret is. Then allows you to go back and look at the show. And I, I prefer to work in that area rather than just putting a photograph on the wall and say, okay, that's $2,000. Instead, I want to put a lot of information out there for the general public. Over the years I've been working on the street, I've learned a lot about the needs of the general public. That general public generally don't go to art institutions. So I become their art institution. Mm-hmm. It's up to me to cater to their needs in terms of what they prefer to look at. And over the years, them coming to the gallery, I got a better idea in terms of satisfying their, their needs, mainly by images that I put in the window. I have an ongoing audience that I have to constantly satisfy that comes by and look at the window. Right. It depends on how much time they spend in terms of the images they have in the window. I have to take note of all of this stuff here. Mm-hmm. So we just sitting back there doing nothing. I'm studying things carefully because I need to make another move in terms of my public. And the oh, whole thing at that point. <laughs> Was to grow the public. You're not doing nothing. Um, um, that's clear. So, so, but speak a little bit more about that about public access to art. You uh, have demonstrated. When I first as you started, said, just quickly, I, I want to bring up. When I first started showing, it was an issue in terms of okay, once that show is over, where, where does it go from there? So from there, I was going down to Washington Square Park, looking at how other arts are dealing with being isolated and having an opportunity to show something on the street. So that's where the idea came to me. Well, if there's a fence, you can always put something up on it. It's free and you get a good going public and you get an idea of whether or not you're succeeding or failing in terms of how the public deals with that just walking by if they stop and look at it okay you got something going on if they keep on walking by okay you know try something else in the process of that and over the years i've learned a lot about public exhibitions because that became the main stable of me starting minority photographers providing a platform or uh, area that the artists could exhibit in and carefully, over the years, I was able to expand on that from just showing in bars and theaters, et cetera, all the way into these artists getting into legitimate galleries, but understanding what the structure is in terms of getting in there. So for 20 years, I helped artists get through that whole structure and get into the system that exists today. Because back then, the system essentially did not exist for them. But eventually, cracks begin to appear, and they, they start getting into those systems. So now they became very popular artists because they was able to, you know, have the time and the energy to work themselves into that system. Right now, so, Alex, uh, you you've lived down in the Lower East Side uh, for almost fifty years now, and your photography goes even further back. And when I look at some of your photos, I'm you know struck by how it captures a, a pre gentrified uh, New York. Uh, gives us a glimpse into a world that has largely vanished. Uh, your thoughts on that 
uh, how you're preser- capturing and preserving something, uh, you know, that was beautiful. I mean, and people look back on it. It's like walking into this interview and realizing that the, the neighborhood that used to be my neighborhood is no longer there. So the whole idea of me moving forward with the ideas means moving along with the public that's, that's coming into the neighborhood and being able to adjust to that new community and being prepared to offer them up the same kind of offering I offered all everybody else in the process. So that's part of the show that's up now in terms of my new community. My new, new community is very complex in terms of the type of people that I now communicate with as opposed to when I first started all of this here. And it just expanded all kinds of different directions in terms of what I like to do and satisfying that public. And that public being able to support me and give me the necessary impetus to continue working in those areas. So, yes, the, the neighborhood have changed, but only in the complexity of the cosmetic side of it. The energy and the soul has always been there. We have gotten a little bit old, a little bit more isolated, yes, but yet no, there's somebody filling our place behind us as we move along. And I see that as the evolution of the Lower East Side. What it used to be is going back to what it used to be again. It's, it's simple. It keeps, keeps recycling itself in different aspects. But the soul and quality of the neighborhood simply haven't changed. It just haven't improved in terms of the intellectuals that came in to give it a new language. And Alex, in our last minute here, I just want to have your your comments um, on one thing, which is that once you lamented to me the lack of good art critique currently, can you talk briefly about I, 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 I've been working very hard in that area trying to get various individuals to take over those roles of helping to kind of like pre-describe what's really going on within and outside of the communication arts. Right now, there's no one there to actually accentuate what's really going on. So it kind of like it's gotten kind of lost within itself in terms of direction. So most of the museums and educational institutions like the museums, essentially have completely lost touch with the, the community at large in terms of the general public. The general public, basically, you have to look at that the number of people who have the time and the energy to basically go into those spaces. Like all that, all that have changed due to the virus thing. And it's just a matter of how we're going to recover in order to get that community back into place again in terms of people, you know, indulging and enjoying the culture of the neighborhood and the rest of New York City. Right. So, so how do we go about, you know, putting all that back together again? So that's the area that I'm involved in trying to get people to write about what's going on in the arts down here in the rest of the country. Well, one good way that they can do it is by going to see your exhibit. And unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there for today. But it was great to speak with you, uh, legendary photographer Alex Harsley. Everybody can go see your exhibit. It's up through November 15th at Cooper Square Committee Studio One. That's at 59-61 East 4th Street number three w in manhattan you can also follow alex at fourth street photo on instagram correct and facebook and facebook alex harsley thank you so much thank you okay so that wraps it up for today's show we'll be back same time next week with the independent news hour also we have that election night special coming up in two weeks from five to ten 
p.m. on November 8th. Uh, Amba, what's our uh, final song for tonight? Transition East by composer Angel Bat-Dawid. Thank you.